Uh, just before I introduce you to our first guest on the program today, let me quote from an article our guest wrote recently at theconversation.com. Conversations are beginning about Generation C, the COVID-19 kids. While exactly which ages should be included in this generational label is under debate, what's clear to researchers of child development is that COVID-19 has led to global shutdowns that have rattled economies, communities, and families, and will affect children for years to come. The opening paragraph in an article entitled Generation C, Why Investing in Early Childhood is Critical After COVID-19. The author of this piece is a professor of special education at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. A pleasure to welcome Dr. David Philpott to the program. Dr. Philpott, David, good morning, sir. Good morning, Vancouver. And it's great to have you with us, David. This is an important piece that you've written, and you've spent a great deal of your career researching childhood education. So let's start with what you know or what we and researchers know already about early childhood education. And let's take a look at that line, that, that, that question that you opened up in your opening paragraph with respect to what ages apply when we're talking about early childhood education. Well, I, I think all children have been negatively impacted by this. I mean, all of us have been negatively impacted by oh, yeah. children. But I think the younger the child, the more the impact. I mean, teenagers are, are you know, have stronger systems of connection, stronger networks, uh, and, and, and are used to online learning. I mean, mm-hmm. virtual high schools is, is a norm for many parts of, of, the, of the country, although not ideal. Um, but the younger the child, the more the impact. And you think, you know, 80% of the child's brain develops before six. It's the richest period of neural development. We know that you know, neural development is fueled by experiences. Positive uh, experiences lead to positive growth, and negative experiences lead to neural pruning. So we are into the second year now. For a child zero to five, that's two or five years of, of yeah. neural development. That's 40% of their optimal development has been negatively impacted by the isolation. David, how much of that development has been negatively impacted? I mean, I appreciate the fact that they're not able to to uh, enjoy uh, the normal, uh, a norm, a more normal childhood. But in in view of the limitations that we're all confined under, what does that do? What do those restrictions do to a, a young brain? Yeah, well, I, I guess it's important to say that this is not about blaming uh, the decision to close schools. No one's going to argue that. It's not about mm-hmm. cause, but rather, con- but rather consequence. Um, you know, kids learn uh, through play. They learn through interaction. They learn language by speaking with other kids. They learn sure. to regulate their behaviors by playing with other kids. They learn um, muscular and motoric development by being physically active and, and, you know, engaging. So all of that has been negatively impacted and very limited. I'm not just, I'm, I'm personally worried more for the uh, kids from the, the, from the wealthier homes, the larger homes where both parents are working. I mean, think about the reality of these kids' lives. The families yeah. are smaller, just one, maybe two kids. Both parents are online trying to maintain careers and the children are alone in these big homes for two years now. So, that's a significant impact. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, what are the? Uh, you're talking now about the uh, the concern in the article, as I understand it, David, deals with the long term, the lingering after effects of uh, mm-hmm. of of the uh, of what these restrictions and limitations have caused. What are you expecting in terms of a negative outcomes that you see are going to have to be addressed? Well, I think we're just starting to think about this. We're just starting to have this conversation. The phrase Generation C is just being coined, uh, and researchers are just starting to look at the impact. Uh, I think, you know, we're going to see slower development. We're going to see, you know, uh, uh, breakdowns in academic achievement. We think for the kids who are graduating high school and going on to university, they're going to have struggles getting through. They might get into universities, but they're going to get to have struggles getting through the curriculum. Young children showing up at kindergarten aren't going to be as prepared as they were a few years ago. Uh, and, and educators are going to have to address that lag and, and try to, to make up, you know, last time. And we used to talk about early child education as being optimal for child development, but we're now talking about as being compensatory for for the experiences that they've dealt with. So, uh, and, and, and I don't think you're going to get much of an argument in terms of the reclassification of, of those, uh, of the, of the type of development we're talking about here, David, but I'm curious, uh, as to the, as to the sorts of remedies you're recommending and, and you, you're not recommending where, where this is a very much a work in progress. You, you don't have any hard conclusions to present at this point. No one does, but what, what are you mm-hmm. seeing, uh, in, let's talk about what we know. Let's talk about for a moment, if you would, please, just to bring us up to speed on what you know about early childhood education as it affects the ability of that person who enjoyed early childhood education and a lot of it later in both their academic and life careers. Well, we know from research, you know, international research that Two years exposure to quality early child education optimizes literacy, numeracy, social skills, behavior regulation, and language. Lo and behold, 60% of kids in special education are there because of lags in those same areas. Uh, You know, we have, uh, I released a report a couple of years ago looking at the impact of quality early child education, and it showed that kids who have early child education experiences are at, you know, 45% uh, reduction in risk for cognitive issues, 55% uh, reduction in, in, in risk by age 16, 39% reduction in social and behavioral risk. So mm-hmm. another study out of Ontario shows pretty much the same thing that, you know, that the, um, the impact of these kids on these kids is significant. For example, kids who are in early child education, uh, kids who weren't in early child education are twice as likely to need support in reading and three times more likely to need support with behavioral and self-regulation. So well, the, the, the benefits of early child education are, are significant. And the well, generation and- having lost that is a concern. And I suppose there, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting and I apologize, but uh, there is an economic argument uh, uh, made by some against the expense, if you will, the hideous expense of early childhood education, my goodness. But then you point out quite accurately that in the absence of the investment in early childhood education, we pay an enormous additional cost in the education system for people who require extra educational assistance partly because they didn't get what they what, what the early childhood uh, 
that the education that they needed. So in terms of an economic argument, David, it's not one or the other, is it? No, I mean, we know the, the economic argument is pretty solid. There's a report out by Craig Alexander at Deloitte, from Deloitte uh, last week that makes the economic argument. Uh, we know that the return on investment is for ECE is significant. For, for every dollar invest that we get back upwards of $1.75 to $3, depending on how you measure quality. So the, mm-hmm. the immediate return is significant. But if you stretch that over the lifespan, the return is even higher because we know that these kids who have ECE, early child education experiences, they have a higher rate of high school completion. They have a higher rate of post-secondary participation. They have a higher earning jobs, We and they pay higher tax brackets, and there's less of a draw on social programs. You know, we have over 60 years of research on the benefits of these programs, and the economic argument is not an argument anymore. It's a fact. We have mm-hmm. the data to show that. Is there are there attempts being made through uh, throughout this COVID period, Doctor Philpot, uh, to maintain some basic level of early childhood education in 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 most areas in Canada? Well, yes, I think if anything good has come from this, and then that's a stretch to even use that phrase. But mm. this has un- unmasked the, the patchwork quilt of early child education in this country, how fragile that sector has been. I mean, the, the disruption of this to women's employment, you know, is, is significant. The, uh, mother's uh, maternal employment rates have drawn, fallen to the lowest time in the last 30 years. And, yeah. uh, I, and I think, you know, like the federal government, the Chris Friedman's task force on women and the economy, that has just been announced. I mean, that that has a task to look at how do we address this? How do we build a stronger you know, national framework of universal access to early child education? At the same time, that's happening. The, uh, the federal provincial bilateral agreements for funding early child education are about to be renegotiated. Uh-huh. And we're waiting for the federal budget to come out. So mm-hmm. 2021 has to be a year of action. And that action has been formed as much by the research as, as by the recent experience of Canadian families. Yeah, I'm quoting from an article written by our guest. Here we go. It's more and more. We will see the impact of social isolation, the loss of social skill developments, and trauma on young children. Some children will bear the scars of the pandemic for years to come. Addressing these scars, especially for our more vulnerable and at-risk children, is an urgent priority. Access to high-quality, early childhood education and kindergarten is not the singular solution to these problems, but it is a cornerstone. This is a paragraph from an article entitled Generation C, Why Investing in Early Childhood is Critical After COVID-19. The author of this piece is our guest, Dr. David Philpott, a professor of special education at Memorial University on the other side of Canada, joining us this morning from Foggy St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. David, uh, as we've talked about already with respect to the impact of COVID, I mean, uh, all of us are aware in a, in, a, in a way perhaps that m- many of us have never experienced before. All of us are more aware of our mental health, perhaps now, than and, and, and another, any other point in our lives. This has only come about because of the the imposition that COVID has uh, brought to all our lives. And if some of us grown-ups are feeling a little boxed in and a little mm, uh, cabin fever-like, 
Imagine how this is impacting a four-year-old. Yes, exactly. I mean, this is, we're all realizing our collective vulnerability, but I mean, young children, it's impacting their sense of security. It's impacting how safe they feel in the world. It's, it's impacting whether or not it's risky or safe to, to play and to hug your friend or to, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's a huge impact around, you know, for children to, to, to become very reluctant and guarded in their interactions. I and mean, we all have to be guarded, obviously, but the, mm-hmm. we can understand that. But for a young child, this is their normal. This is their, their new norm, right? Yeah, and, and I think, uh, and we've learned, and you're a, an early childhood development researcher, among other things, David, and we know how, how important, for example, routine is to the development of, of a young person. Uh, rinse and repeat. It drives parents crazy doing this again and everything at the same time every day, and on and on it goes. But it is that structure created by routine that has been really uh, knocked around a whole lot in the last year, hasn't it? Well, there is no structure. There is no routine. I mean, repetitive play, repetitive interaction, repetitive reinforcement of positive skills helps, you know, neural, helps the brain development. Conversely, Mm -hmm. negative experience, trauma, you know, causes brain, we we know that brain cells actually prune and and, and they they atrophy. Uh, So the impact is is significant. But I look at BC, and one of the things that I've always admired BC for having done extremely well is that it it builds social emotionally learning as one of the pillars of of the entire educational system. And I think you guys are probably more poised to respond because you already recognize the importance of social emotional learning. I was there in the fall, I was in Vancouver in the fall, of 2019 for a, a conference on, um, on, on early child education. I got to speak uh, um, and I got to interact with some of your lead educators. And I'm, you know, I was really impressed with, with how much of a priority this is for your government and, and how hard they are working to strengthen you know, early child education so that children can be you know, optimized in their development. I don't think this pandemic has just validated that work and validate your decision to, to, you know, to use social emotional learning as a pillar of your curriculum frameworks. And for those of us, David, who are perhaps unfamiliar with the concept, could you elaborate for a moment to those of us in British Columbia who pay for this? What do you mean by social emotional learning? Well, it's recognition, I guess, boil it down simply. It's recognition that schools and education and learning, be it you know early child education or primary or elementary or you know senior high school, it's not just about reading the math. It's not just about you know getting the curriculum covered. It's about human development. It's about you know, understanding yourself, managing your emotions, uh, recognizing how your your temperament and, and your sense of, of who you are in this world can really impact your ability to function, the ability to interact. And, and once a child has that self-awareness and the ability to monitor, decide, and act, and evaluate, those mm-hmm. are all, you know, essential skills that you and I use in our everyday life. But that's how, you know, we deal with the boss. That's how we interact on the job. That's how we interact in our relationships. Sure. But for young children, they need to be taught that. It doesn't just happen automatically. One of the things you talk about in your piece at theconversation.com is the importance of kindergarten. Now, in some jurisdictions, they have, as, it, as the, is the case in Ontario, they have what they call junior kindergarten and kindergarten. So they actually have two years of that. It's not the case in all Canadian provinces. As a starter, 
would that be a, a good place to go for all provinces and territories? Two years of kindergarten before going to grade one. Well, it's, it's not just in Ontario. It's a national trend. I mean, Nova Scotia has just launched. Newfoundland has announced that we are moving forward with it. Uh, the Northwest Territories have it. Uh, and you know, Alberta, um, um, Quebec has a version of it. Scandinavian countries, it's the, it's the cornerstone of their entire educational system. Mm-hmm. So by kindergarten, my, my understanding of kindergarten was a half day in, in school when I, when I was, you know, 50 years ago when I was five. Sure, right, uh, right. Um, but now we, we understand kindergarten. It's a two-year experience, full day with, you know, a, a, a kindergarten teacher and an early child educator working collaboratively with a play-based curriculum, uh, with a strong curriculum framework. Uh, and th- those kids stay together for two years in that environment. So the teachers really get to know those children and really get to know those families and develop relationships with with those families so that by the time a child moves to grade one, they are ready. They, you know, they are poised to to do well. And the school has a thorough understanding of their needs, especially the vulnerable kids or the marginalized families, the, the people most difficult to engage with. All of that is done. All of those needs are identified. All the supports are in place. Uh, the relationships are established with the families, uh, and the parents trust the schools. The schools know the, the parents. Uh, so it's a really optimizing of readiness for not just schooling, but for human development. Interesting stuff. David, I'd like a, a final question to you, and it's just been a, a real pleasure having you on this morning and, and discussing something that really needs to be addressed a lot. I want to go back to something that you mentioned a few moments ago, just before the news break, in fact, because, of course, federal budget time is now coming within the next couple of weeks. And the Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland, uh, has already announced a task force on women in the workforce. Uh, and we are expecting, for example, perhaps some funding for daycare uh, and, and and other initiatives. But the one aspect of this that you touched on, David, uh, I think, with especially as it pertains to early childhood development, is the impact of COVID-19 not only on their children, but on Canadian working women. It's been a tough ride for a lot of them. Absolutely. I mean, this has fallen on mother's shoulders. I mean, the you know, mothers are, are home trying to maintain their careers and be a teacher and be a, a, a child care provider uh, all at the same time. And I think it's that disproportionate impact and the financial follow from that disruption to parents. You know, we're going to see many parents have to delay retirement because of, of COVID. Many yes. mothers having to, to, to delay retirement. Many career interruptions. We we have a glass ceiling in female employment. Well, this is part of the reason we have a glass ceiling. Women's, you know, uh, careers are constantly disrupted by having no option around how to provide optimal care for their children during the early years. Uh, and you know, and I think the, the the challenge to the federal government is not just to invest in the early years, but to create a national system of childcare that can survive a pandemic, that can mm-hmm. that can be you know not interruptive of mom's career. And the way to do that is to tie the early years with the K to twelve system, recognizing that education begins much earlier than six years of age, and that you know build the infrastructure so that we have lasting no consequence of, of, of this the federal investment. Uh, but here in Newfoundland, for example, I was involved in the task force and we identified, I think it was 45 communities in which there is less than 
five, four and five year olds. I mean, these are communities in rural parts of the country where there are no options and that where the children, you know, could easily be taken into the schools with existing capacity because the, the mm-hmm. enrollments are so low. Uh, and I think, you know, it, there's, there's many arguments to be made for tying the early years to the K-12 system uh, and creating a, a, you know, a, a tapestry across the country of a really strong network of, of early child education. Interesting stuff. Dr. David Philpott is the author, friends, of an article I commend to your reading at theconversation.com entitled Generation C, Why Investing in Early Childhood is Critical After COVID-19. Dr. David Philpott at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. A pleasure to have you aboard this morning, sir. Uh, and uh, I'd like the opportunity to speak to you again, David, because this, uh, this, uh, this is, to say the very least, a work in progress. Very much so. This has been a pleasure for me as well. Take care. Duff Conacher joins us from Democracy Watch in Ottawa, where it's been nice and warm for a few days. Duff, good morning and welcome back to the show. Thanks very much. So let's talk a little, a couple of things on, on your plate this morning that I want to unpack, uh, Duff. But the, the number one story, and it's not a new story, but it is to the many of us here in British Columbia, is this bill that the Ford government in Ontario passed a, a while ago. Uh, and this is, this is not sitting well with a lot of people, not only in Ontario, but right across Canada. As I understand the bill, and this is why you're with us this morning to make sure we've got it right in the first place, Duff, the Ontario government has provided legal shielding for the owners of long-term care homes in in such a way that they can't be sued by members of families who, uh, who whose family members died while in their care during COVID-19. That, as I understand it, is the nuts and bolts of this new bill. Is that the case? Uh, yes, and also shielding many other businesses some of which it makes sense to shield, like small businesses. Uh, Small businesses were uh, under government order to be shutting down, were not given a lot of uh, information, Uh, were allowed to open and have, you know, a certain number of people go in at certain times, again, Mm -hmm. based on government orders. And so they were not making decisions on their own. The government was deciding for them. With the long-term care homes, though, Ford not only canceled many inspections of those homes very soon after he was elected, and that has led to a lot of the problems because they were allowed to get away with not meeting standards because they weren't Mm -hmm. being inspected anymore because the Ford government had canceled the inspections. He then has gone on to uh, allow them to be shielded from accountability for what is confirmed to be complete negligence in many cases that led to thousands of deaths in Ontario. And yeah. uh, it's, it's a completely unethical bill as well, because uh, every one of those homes and the overall association for the long-term care homes in Ontario employs lobbyists who help Ford get elected. And he's just returning the favor to those right, lobbyists right. and their clients. I suppose, to, Duff, that it occurs to those of us who don't live in Ontario that if Ford can do this in Ontario, why couldn't Horgan do it in B.C. or Kenny in Alberta or Moe in Saskatchewan? Why is this? Could this create a domino effect in terms of the 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 uh, groups that own these long term care homes, uh, these large corporations? In some cases, uh, will essentially enjoy kind of a a national immunity? Is that possible? 
it is possible. Um, Ford went even further, and he's tried to restrict anyone suing the government for negligence at any time. Uh, and a court has just thrown that out and said, you yeah. can't do that. There, there's mm-hmm. a longstanding rule that governments have to be held accountable for negligence. And you can't just put a, a law in place saying, sorry, we're just shielding us ourselves and allowing us to act irresponsibly and, and negligently. And no one uh, can do anything about it. Um, so the court's just thrown that out. And Bill 218 is also being challenged on the same grounds, that it just essentially violates charter rights for a government to take this kind of action. And 218, and, just, to, just for our friends in BC, Duff, 218 is the number, the bill number of the, of the law that allows uh, in, uh, long-term care homes to be shielded from lawsuits. That's number 218, right? Yes, that's right. And okay. uh, not just long-term care homes, but many other businesses. Right. Uh, but but the, the big exemption people were trying to get uh, long-term care homes carved out of that bill because of the, the uh, extensive evidence of negligence at those homes that sure. led to thousands of deaths. And so uh, that fight continues, but Ford's gone even further. And uh, most of the decisions he's made about COVID have been driven by lobbyists who helped him get elected. Uh, or help the PC party with fundraising. It is a true government, best government that money can buy situation. And those people, if they hire those lobbyists that help Ford get elected, are getting what they want from this Ford government. Are and we're trying to stop it. We've, we've filed complaints against these lobbyists. Uh, there yeah. is a rule that says that a lobbyist in Ontario cannot lobby a politician if they would put the politician in a real or potential conflict of interest. And unfortunately, the Ontario Integrity Commissioner, as the Federal Ethics Commissioner has, the Alberta Ethics Commissioner, the BC uh, Conflict of Interest Commissioner, back when Christy Clark was taking all those huge donations and her ministers oh, right. were at these mm-hmm. small exclusive events, they're all, they're all ignoring the law. And uh, we've been in court with a bunch of them, and we're currently in court with, with 15 lawsuits against the... Uh, the uh, Ontario Integrity, or sorry, nine lawsuits against the Ontario Integrity Commissioner, uh, challenging his rulings that are letting these lobbyists corrupt Ontario government policymaking because they mm-hmm. are they helped Ford get elected, they did him that favor, and now they're seeking favors for their clients from him. Why is this starting to sound more American by the minute? You know, uh, down there, we all understand in Canada, we understand the, fi- the campaign financing regulations that do not exist in the United States. And so that when it comes to election time down there, Duff, we all know he or she who has the most money wins the race. And Yeah, well, actually, the- a lot of people don't know this. The U.S. had donation limits back to the 70s. Mm-hmm. for uh, individuals and a ban on corporate and union donations back to the 70s, way ahead of us. Only Quebec had rules going back that far. So Canada was much more a free-for-all right up until uh, various jurisdictions started banning corporate and union donations, which only happened very recently in, in BC, right? It only happened in 2017. That's right. Um, the spending still is allowed by third parties, and our donation limits are uh, not uh, much stronger in most jurisdictions, in a lot of cases weaker than in the U.S. Ford is just, has just uh, proposed and is going to, about to pass a bill that will double the donation limit in Ontario, which is going to allow wealthy interests to buy off even more candidates and parties with their large donations. And 
in BC and elsewhere, third parties are allowed to spend a lot of money still. Uh, in the U.S., they're allowed to spend it explicitly supporting a candidate. Right. But that's the only difference. In Canada, you're not allowed to explicitly be supporting a candidate or party, but you can do issue advertising. Uh, and you have limits, usually, if you're sub- explicitly supporting a candidate. And that's the only difference we have between us and the U.S. So we are still very much uh, a big money jurisdiction. Uh, every province across the country, except for Quebec, and at the federal level, where wealthy interests drive election and election debates, are allowed to spend massive amounts of money. And uh, it's uh, we have limits, but the limits are so high in most jurisdictions as to be meaningless, really. Yeah. And, so we still have a lot to clean up in that area, and Ford's heading in the wrong direction by doubling the donation limit here, and uh, and it's because the PC party gets half of its donations in donation uh, or half of the money that's donated to it comes in donations of more than a thousand dollars. So they're supported mostly by wealthy uh, voters in Ontario, and that's why he's doubling the donation limit because it'll benefit his party the most. Yeah. So a lot Definitely. of bad moves here by Ford. I'm quoting now from our guest website, democracywatch.ca. Money for the ref? We don't allow that in hockey or other sports, but in politics, it's legal. Politicians are supposed to be the referees who decide what is in the public interest. So why do we allow wealthy private interests to buy them off with huge donations, including secret donations? And why do we allow interest groups to spend secret, unlimited amounts of money before and during many election campaigns. Perfectly legitimate questions to be asking, Duff Conacher, and for a lot of Canadians in Vancouver this morning, uh, a, a sort of a rude, uh, perhaps a, a pin in the bubble that uh, many of us are living inside because a lot of us are quite convinced that we don't have these campaign donation issues in Canada anymore. We resolve this. The maximum any Canadian person, company, union, or business could give to any party is 1200 bucks, and that's the end of it. And that is not the case at all. Tell us more. Yes, well, uh, actually, uh, businesses and unions are uh, are uh, prohibited from giving donations. In oh, that's good. BC. Uh, so it's only individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the federal level, it's the same. Uh, everywhere except Saskatchewan, Newfoundland, Labrador, and the Yukon have banned corporate and union and other organization donations and put in place limits for uh, individuals. So it's obviously those three jurisdictions where the, you have the biggest big money problem. Mm-hmm. But it's been shown in every jurisdiction that allows a donation limit of uh, $1,000 or more that uh, what happens is the executives of a business or other organization and their family members start to give the maximum. So you have 10 executives and their spouses each giving the maximum, and all of a sudden the business is giving $24,000. Right. 1,200 times 20 people, mm-hmm. which is usually roughly the same amount that the business used to give. Only now it's more difficult to figure out that the business is giving that money because you have to know that who the 10 executives are, and a lot sure. of companies don't publish the names of their top 10 executives, and then their spouses may have a different last name. So you're going through the database trying to figure out who are these donations from? Who, who is this John Smith? Is it one of the thousands of John Smiths in Canada? And it's not so easy to figure out. And so actually, most of the systems across Canada, except for Quebec, which has a $100 donation limit uh, and also requires 
if you donate more than $50, you actually have to give it to Elections Quebec, and they verify that it's you and your money, mm-hmm. and that it's not a scam where someone's giving you money to donate, and that it's, you're not uh, some employer who's giving money on behalf of your employees or something. But everywhere else, the donation limit's above $1,000, sometimes well above it, and uh, like Doug Ford's proposing to make it uh, $3,300 to each party, So, you know, there's four main parties in Ontario and you could donate uh, more than $12,000 in total. Mm -hmm. Uh, What about about at the national level, Duff? Yeah, so at the national level, uh, it's now over $1,600. And um, in every jurisdiction, it's been shown that it's a sham that's really hiding big money and not stopping it. The only way to stop big money is to stop big money donations. And that means having a donation limit like Quebec of $100 or less. So give us another example, if you can, of the sham quality of this uh, of this legislation that supposedly holds donations at, at a, a fixed number. Well, um, just to talk about a, a few of the other loopholes, a lot of jurisdictions don't require donations to be disclosed before you vote. So you don't even know who's bankrolled a candidate. Mm-hmm. You find out four months later when the disclosure comes. Well, I mean, that obviously violates the voter's right to be informed. Uh, but every jurisdiction where the donation limit has come in in the last uh, 10 years or so, uh, someone's done a, a study looking at it and has found, whether it's the media or we've done a few ourselves, and they've always found that uh, there are executives at companies and their spouses and sometimes their kids supposedly giving their own money, uh, each the maximum donation, even mm-hmm. sometimes young kids, you know, like 16-year-olds, some, somehow have $1,600 to give. Yeah, yeah. And uh, everyone claims it's their own money. And they're allowed to do that. And it's really hard to prove that it isn't because if everyone says, no, that's my own money, then how do you, how do you prove it isn't? And the company, of course, denies that they gave the money to the executives so, and their family members so that they could donate it. And so no prosecutions occur as a result. And, uh, and this, this funneling is illegal to do. But it's effectively impossible to stop, which, again, right. is why B.C. Is, is still allowing too high a donation. All the other jurisdictions are as well. Secret and lobbying so the is folks, also legal. Um, yeah, it's really I, easy. I have to leave it there, Duff. In the interest of time, I'm just going to direct people to the website, which is full of really good statistical information, lots of backgrounding on campaign donations and the fight that Democracy Watch is involved in to see them stopped or at least tapered down. Democracy Watch dot ca friends it's a good place to start duff conacher always a pleasure thanks very much i'm going to talk mining here for a few minutes always a pleasure to welcome our next guest back to the program he is the senior precious metals analyst for the morgan report he is also the guy behind the david smith is with us again from spokane washington david good morning and welcome back it's good to be here sterling how are you today I'm just fine. Thank you, David. Let me just quote this one paragraph for you. The rally that drove some of the world's largest miners to multi-year highs will extend into 2021 as the economy recovers from the steepest slump since the Great Depression, according to analysts. This under a Bloomberg headline the other day, bullish wave seen powering rally in mining stocks into 2021. Are you one of those analysts, David Smith, who agrees with this assessment that the rally will continue and mining is looking good going into this new year? 
I absolutely agree with that assessment, Sterling. And, you know, Canada uh, puts out about 60 or 65 percent of all the exploration money globally uh, into looking for new properties and uh, mining uh, properties. And so they are well positioned uh, to take advantage of this. And investors who do their due diligence and look at the best of best properties can do very, very well, in my view. Uh, now, here in British Columbia, we, of course, do a lot of mining. It's been the backbone or a pillar of our economy for generations, David. Uh, we know about copper, for example, up in the interior. There are huge copper mines. Uh, what is what is BC's mining community best positioned to do well at over the next few months? What What area, what rocks are we pulling out from the ground that are likely to be most valuable? Well, it's a two-layered thing, Sterling. For one thing, in BC itself, in Yukon, you've got very uh, high-grade copper deposits, as you mentioned. Yep. Also, gold and silver. Uh, you got the you got the Golden Triangle up in uh, uh, you know up in BC and up toward Yukon. And so, also the money that flows from BC uh, all over the world, but all over Canada too, means that uh, the properties and projects that are going really well are not just in BC but they're influenced by the money that flows from BC, the investment money and, and the investor money. Okay. So I'm surprised. Do we have gold in British Columbia? I always thought most of Canada's gold, David, was in northern Ontario, around places like Timmins and so on. Do we actually have gold in BC? Certainly do. And, and you know, uh, if you look at Copper Mountain, uh, which is a copper play uh, that's a producer, about 30% of their, uh, of their income comes from gold. So this is one of the things for people looking at copper plays. You want to find a near-term producer or a producer that is a copper gold play because that will strengthen the bottom line greatly. Because, but anyway, copper is going to be very profitable regardless. But that's, that's something you want to look at as opposed to a straight copper play, which could still do well, but mm -hmm. uh, that just gives you an extra bonus. Well, it's interesting that you would you would talk about that from the perspective of of how of how an investor might look at it, because, David, as we also know uh, here uh, since covid began uh, right across North America, around the world. But here in North America, there's an astonishing amount of cash sitting on the sidelines right now. And we're also learning that a lot of young Canadians have decided to get into investing and are, are and so on. So if I'm a new person getting into the game and I'm looking at mining stocks as a possibility, I know, for example, right out, because anyone, anyone I'm related to will instantly tell me, well, you know, it's a pretty high risk area, though. So let's talk about that in terms of risk, David, and then we'll talk about whether you should own a stock or actual gold or silver. But are mining stocks so prohibitively risky that they just are something that only professional investors should consider? The answer to that is yes and no. If you go in blindsided and you just go get something you've heard about lately, the risk is very high there. There are some of these companies that are lifestyle companies where they issue shares basically to be able to fly around the world and promote their company and right. never produce any product. But if you go with people that have done it before, and there are some real uh, legends in the uh, BC area in Canada, then you have a very good chance of doing well. For example, Ross Beatty is known as the broken slot machine. He's put 14 projects during his career into production, and 12 or 13 of them were massive, massive successes. So mm -hmm. looking at what he's done would give you an idea how to reduce that risk. 
So again, and it is possible, you don't have to go into this blind either, do you? Especially if you've taken the time to decide that you're even interested in this sector. I would think some people are because it's got a kind of a gambling allure to it. But a lot of other people, serious investors, are really looking at mining and really getting involved these days. What's the draw right now, David? Because I don't think prices are at any kind of record lows, that's for sure. Well, you're certainly not buying the bottom, but the, the potential on the upside is so great in copper and uranium and gold and silver and, and uh, nickel that you don't have to be at the bottom. You just have to watch position sizes and not put too much into one play, no matter how confident you are about it. And you can right. go to an excellent source for young people and people of all ages. I listen to it all the time. And that's Jay Martin's work that he's doing by reinventing Cambridge House online. He interviews some of the top people uh, in his uh, in his presentations in mm-hmm. this sector, and you can learn a lot from that. So then, do as as a person looking at investing possibly in the mining sector, especially precious metals, your area of specialty. Was, would the recommendation then, David, be rather than owning stocks in a gold mining company here in B.C. or in Ontario somewhere, why not just buy uh, 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 gold coins or actual physical gold? What's the difference in terms of me, the person holding it, to hold a stock certificate versus a gold coin? Well, this is looking over my shoulder rather than financial advice. But, you know, David Morgan at the Morgan Report always recommends having some physical first. Having said that, the premiums are quite high now, uh, and so you're going to have to pay a higher premium. But, you know, the potential upside is really great. So you buy from a trusted source. You don't buy collector coins or graded coins. You stick with bullion coins or -hmm. something like the the wonderful uh, uh, Canadian uh, gold maple leaf or silver maple leaf. Those are excellent choices. Those are two of the most popular coins in their class in the world. Ah. Now, David, uh, so then... uh is is silver the poor man's gold, especially for a new person who may not have all the money in the world but still wants to play in the game? Is silver the preferred portal by the way by way of entry into the game? It can certainly be an easier entry, and the odds are, in fact, it always happens when we go into a bull market in precious metals. Silver outproduces the percentage-wise the gains in gold. They're both going to rise strongly over the next few years. But silver will will do much greater uh, percentage gain than gold will. So that's a good way to get started. The beautiful coins, you can buy, you know, the Krugerrands. You can buy the American Silver Eagles, which have a very mm-hmm. high premium now. But uh, that is a very excellent way to go as insurance first, profit second. David, I wonder, could you spend a minute just talking about rare earth metals with us this morning? We're, for example, starting to hear that we have some uh, access to rare earth metals in Canada, but China has most of the world uh, supply of rare earth metals, not necessarily in China, but they own a huge proportion of it, and they appear to be trying to buy it all. So tell us about rare earth metals and why they are indeed attractive this morning. Well, you know, rare earths are found all over the world, and they're not really rare. But what's rare is finding concentrations that are economically feasible. Plus, they Uh take a lot of different steps to produce them. They can be very toxic in production if they're not handled properly, this type Mm -hmm. of thing. But they're absolutely critical for modern-day electronics and things like this, things that you don't even think of. You know, your watches, your refrigerators, the high-tech fighter planes, this type of a thing. And so the rare earths are being given a very special 
um, dispensation in the United States with a critical metals program that's being launched. And one of the things that most people don't realize, and you can do your own due diligence on this rather than me just giving you a name of a company, but there are a couple of companies in the United States that are Canadian companies that are able to refine rare earths and are actually producing product right now. And so this this is starting to change. It's going to take a few years to make a big difference. But we're getting out from under the grip of China, as you mentioned, which has a stranglehold on rare earths. And we're finally mm-hmm. realizing the importance of changing that. So uh, it, Canada and the United States are getting their act together on this finally. Very, very potentially high profit standard. So, again, look for Canadian companies capable of processing rare earth metals. Right. All right. David, I'm, I'm out of time. I'm always grateful for yours. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program because you make us think about stuff that typically wouldn't cross our minds. And yet we're seeing all the headlines in the business sections about metals and precious metals taking off. And so it's it's good that you're able to provide us with the facts behind the headlines and, uh, and a hype-free analysis of what's really going on out there. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for this, David. You bet. Take care. Have, have a great day, Sterling. We get to talk a little sports for a few minutes with the guys from the booth and the Whitecaps games. A pleasure to welcome Corey Brasso and Colin Miller to the program this morning. Corey and Colin are the radio broadcast crew for the Vancouver Whitecaps. Gentlemen, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. It's great to be on your show this morning. I'm I'm Colin Miller, the good-looking one, in case you, you couldn't recognize the accent. <laughs> well, there was some doubt about that, now, wasn't there, Colin? Thank you very much. Corey, good morning to you. Uh, good morning to you, Mr. Fox. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say I'm a big fan of yours going all the way back to the 650CL days, which happened to be my radio station of choice on the old construction site with my father back in the day. So this is a, a wee bit of a radio milestone for me. So I'm absolutely stoked to be joining you here on the weekends. And uh, don't let well, Colin Miller fool you. He's been looking into the same shattered mirror for seven years. <laughs> well, it's great to have both of you with us, uh, and and it's it's very exciting time for the Vancouver Whitecaps. Now let's let's get uh, let's get brought up to date on on the Whitecaps situation because we know where the Canucks are, and that's not a nice place this weekend. The Vancouver Whitecaps are in Utah, uh, and they're getting ready for the start of the season, which is a week from tomorrow. How long have they been in the United States as a group? Uh, they've pretty much been there, Sterling, pretty much since the top of April. And, of course, they've been together as a group training before that in Vancouver. Uh, they've got a couple preseason tilts under their belt. Of course, they did have a, uh, a preseason scrimmage in Vancouver against the CPL squad from Victoria, which was kind of a closed-door affair. And then, of course, they were victorious last weekend um, against uh, the Monarchs down in Real Salt Lake, a 3-0 victory, a resounding victory. Obviously, it wasn't uh, we weren't able to see it via a stream or through a radio feed or anything like that, but going off of some of the Twitter reaction in the feed, it was all positive. Uh, so they have a doubleheader today against the Chicago Fire and the Indy 11 from the USL. So two big games today before they put the final touches, the final uh, uh, coat of paint before April 18th. And where are they playing? Are they playing in, in the, uh, the field that the Salt Lake uh, MLS team uses for their regular games? Yeah, that is correct. They will be playing in the uh, picturesque Rio Tinto, and I don't know if you've ever seen photos of just kind of the stadium set up there, uh, Sterling, but it, it almost has a certain empire field look to it for me, fan. You've got a lovely brand-new structure with the mountains in the background, and when the weather behaves, there have been a few snow games in, in Utah. When the weather does yes. behave, it's probably one of the more picturesque um, kind of landscapes, something you could put on a postcard, really, as far as MLS kind of stadiums go. 
Colin, I wanted to ask you about, I mean, we can't uh, ignore the elephant in the room when it comes to COVID because, of course, we're still doing workarounds in terms of all professional sports just getting their games up and running, for crying out loud. What's the status of the Whitecaps organization this weekend, Colin, with respect to COVID? Everybody okay? Everybody clear? Yes, I'm I'm touching wood when I say this, Sterling, of course, but uh, the Whitecaps have been very, very thorough in their preparation for COVID, as you can imagine, I mean, and, and I'm sure the other sports franchise, I'm sure the Canucks did their, did their due diligence. It's just one of these things that maybe some of the situations may be taken out of their control. But I know for a fact that the Whitecaps have spent a great deal of time, um, you know, even when they were away last year, uh, Sterling, last season, they were in a bubble, if you like, down in Orlando. Yes. So they've, mm-hmm. they've managed to get uh, this down to a fine art uh, of, of staying safe, uh, doing the, the proper things. And, and for the fans listening here, Sterling, it's, it's, quite a, uh, it's quite a fantastic process the Whitecaps have gone through. They've flown the families down to, to Utah as well as the players so that uh, you know, they could be down there for as much as three months of the season. Uh, so they're, they're, they're working very, very hard behind the, season, uh, sorry, behind the scenes to make sure that everything is done that is making sure the players and their families are safe, the players are happy that they have their families there. Sure. That, that, that might not always be the case, Sterling, mm. but my wife is listening here, so I have to be a good boy. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it's, just a, it's just a case of, yes, they are doing absolutely everything that is possible to keep the players and of course, the staff safe, uh, and they'll be testing every morning to make sure that everybody's passing the the, the test. Mm. Uh, so they're doing everything that's within their control to to assure everyone that they're safe. Yeah, Corey Long, let me pick up on that because Colin raised the point of, of the fact that the Whitecaps may be in residence down there in Utah a whole lot longer than we would like them to be as the Blue Jays are, are now starting their home games in Dunedin and will eventually transition to Buffalo, not Toronto. Uh, talk to us about what you and Colin are faced with. Now, are you going to be able to fly down to Utah and do a quarantine and then hang with the team and do their games from there? Or are you going to do them remotely? Well, I think uh, the initial plan here, Sterling, is to probably look at it remotely, and that's what we did for a good chunk of the, the games last season, especially down in Orlando and um, even in the, the second kind of mini-bubble there in Portland that, that wrapped up the good portion of the season. Outside of the games right. that, that were at BC Place, so uh, not to get ahead of, of the big contest that the Whitecaps have here to start out the first, oh gosh, I think it's eight weeks of the season down in the United States, but mm-hmm. um, there, there, there is some positivity around that the Whitecaps could be back at BC Place in the summertime, and those games that we, we could be a part of as well because me and Colin were a part of the the Canadian mini series that they had at BC Place last year and obviously it was only three games against Canadian opposition Toronto and and Montreal just to kind of get some of those season games out of the way but I think that has to be circled on the Whitecaps calendar and just talking with Axel Schuster yesterday me and Colin got the opportunity um, to chat with him just about that and he said you know what it's it's so hard to 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 play away from home from this for, for that long, I mean, it's it, you don't want to create excuses, but that's that's not an easy setup. And the Whitecaps did it all last year, and I thought they 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 put up an admirable fight there. They were only three points out of the playoffs, so I think this year if they can get some home cooking, I said to I said on 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 one of my hits yesterday with some other media members that if the Whitecaps can keep it, you know, above five hundred for this first portion of the season, 
get back home, get some home cooking, really get your feet underneath you. I think that's what they'll be looking forward to. And of course, coming up on this initial game, they might be missing a few players because mm. there is still some paperwork to go through for three or four guys, two of their new guys as well, a super draft pick and Ali Adnan. So they might not have all hands on deck right away. So they might have to really be tugging on the rope all in the same direction. And I also wanted to add on to what Colin said before, just about the setup in Utah. The Whitecaps have really done their due diligence here. They didn't just they didn't just throw a spot on a map and where it landed was Utah. And they said, okay, this yeah, is where right. we're going. They, they checked California. They checked Portland. They checked uh, Washington. They checked everywhere to find out where's the best setup where we can have a facility that is safe, where we can still train and have a locker room and feel like we're at least at a home kind of setup. And then, of mm-hmm. course, to bring the families down and have the condos available in Utah to, to accommodate, gosh, however many players and their families. Yeah, you do got a, a lot of young players who maybe they don't have a, a – uh, a wife and kids just yet, but that's that's still that's still an undertaking. I think the Whitecaps have done really well to try and replicate a home setting. Yeah, and Colin, a final question to you, sir, and it's so good to have you guys on the program today. I'm looking forward to more than a few conversations as the season goes <laughs> forward. But Colin, as far as as far as those incredibly crazed, wonderful, rabid Vancouver Whitecaps fans, uh, in, in terms of their hopes and expectations for home games this year how confident are you going forward that maybe sometime this summer we'll be able to enjoy a caps game at bc place yeah it's a good question sterling and it's one that i actually asked axel schuster yesterday along with Corey, and um he was quietly optimistic that uh the the caps would be back in in vancouver playing at, at our home at bc place and you know, it, it's, he didn't want to get carried away. The plan, the schedule is, is very heavy for the Whitecaps to be at home at the tail end of the season. Right. Uh, but he is, he is uh, there's so many things at the moment that are still out of everyone's control. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, I would hate to say, oh, yeah, this is definitely going to happen and make false promises. But I can assure you that everything that is possible that should be done for the Whitecaps to return home and to get games here at BC Place is being done. So uh, if everyone behaves themselves and, and uh, fingers crossed everyone does, that, uh, that that border will get opened up. Because the problem, of course, is any American team coming into the States have to quarantine. Of course, so yeah. So it's, it's, it's just not feasible for, for the States to uh, or any teams from the States to come up to Vancouver. So once that border opens, and, and again, there's a lot of work to be done for that, uh, right. uh, as, as you can imagine, Sterling, but... He was quietly optimistic that uh, this would happen to towards the tail end. Yeah. Corey Basso, first game tomorrow. Uh, you will be broadcasting on AM 730. Uh, break a leg, both of you. And thanks for doing this this morning. Gentlemen, thank you so much. First to the Whitecaps and to the Chorus Radio Group, a heritage brand in sports meets a heritage brand in radio. Let's go, guys. All right, Thanks, Corey Basso and Colin Miller, the Vancouver Whitecaps FC broadcast crew, heard for the first time a week from tomorrow on Chorus Radio AM 730, the new home of the Whitecaps for the next couple of seasons. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.